0: Right, I need you to pay special attention to the blessing that we're going to do after the Torah reading here because it ties into one of the themes in our Apostolic Scriptures reading. So let's uh, bless him who gave us his word. Baruch Ata Adonai Eloheinu melech haolam Asher natan lanu Torah temet, Blessed are You, Lord our God, King of the Universe, who has given us the Torah of truth and has planted eternal life within us. Blessed are You, Lord, Giver of the Torah. Amen. So you can you can open your scriptures to the passage from John um, Sefer Yochanan, the book of John and we will look at that together first there are several themes that really jumped out at me as I was studying through this and preparing this teaching it's remarkable how many times the Master uses wordplay wordplay in Hebrew that only makes sense in Hebrew so I'm going to be your guide, and I'm going to point a couple of those, those interesting linguistic uh, topographical features out to you. And it's also remarkable just to notice how he related to people in this section. I really look up to Yeshua uh, for that. So we're going we're gonna to look at that together. Um, in Yochanan chapter 3, in the uh, first verses, he's having a conversation with a Jewish sage. Um, Greek says Nicodemus. The Hebrew is Naktimon. There's actually a Naktimon that's mentioned in the Talmud who lived in Jerusalem in Yeshua's time. And he was an extremely wealthy gentleman. I think he was the third richest man in Jerusalem. And uh, it could very well have been that this was the same guy. Anyway, you'll you'll notice here that Yeshua is talking about the need for a total fresh start. For a 100% new beginning. Um, the analogy he used was being born. He said it's basically like you have to go back and get reborn. Um, and he he starts talking in that context about being born of the spirit. What's the Hebrew word for spirit? Ruach. ruach. That is correct, ruach. And then directly after that, in verse eight, he says the, he starts talking about the wind. There just seems to be like a flow, a disconnect in the flow of his, uh, his little draw here, his little explanation. And he starts talking about the wind. The, he, it's like he's explaining something about being born of the Spirit by talking about the wind. Verse 7, don't be amazed that I said to you, you have to be born again. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear the sound of it, but don't know where it comes from and where it's going. So is everyone who's born of the Spirit. For some reason, this thing about the wind seems to explain what he was talking about. What was it in the mind of the Master that was connected here? Well, what was connected was the Hebrew word that he was using. Uh, Yeshua grew up in a Hebrew speaking home. He went to the synagogue and read the Hebrew Torah. He prayed the traditional Jewish prayers, which are all, almost all of them are Hebrew prayers. There are some Aramaic ones in there. And uh, the Hebrew word for spirit, like you just pointed out to me, was Ruach. What's the Hebrew word for wind? Ruach, that's correct. The Hebrew word Ruach means spirit, it means wind, and it means breath. So, when you have this picture of the Almighty in the beginning breathing into this clay figure that he has made from the ground that he sculpted and bringing it to life, that's the same, same concept there. He's breathing life into Adam. He's, he's breathing spirit into Adam and making him a spiritual person. So, there's a some really neat Hebrew wordplay yep and it totally depends on context for how you use it whether you're talking about breath or spirit the spiritual dimension or wind so the question is why is wind the picture in the Hebrew language for the spiritual dimension what are the similarities there you can't see it right it's in you can feel it Mm mm-hmm You can see the effects of it on nature. That's true. I don't know the Greek there, actually. Yeah. I know, like, the Greek is pneuma, I think, or something. That's your homework assignment for the week. You're going to be our Greek scholar, Linda. (laughs) Yeah. Um, When Genevieve and I were driving through North Dakota on Thursday, there were several places where we could see these hills of grass, and the wind was quite strong that day. And you could see the wind, you couldn't see the wind, but you could see the effects of it like in waves over the grass. Have you ever seen that? It's actually quite beautiful. And uh, same with on the water. There were several bodies of water that we passed, and the waves were getting whipped up, and there were white caps. You couldn't see the wind, but you could definitely see the way it was affecting nature. And so it is with the spiritual dimension. We can't see it directly, but we certainly can see the effects of it. We can see the fruit of it on so many levels, even in our own lives. Maybe that's why Yeshua said, you know, if you want to discern a spirit, which is relatively intangible, look at the effect it's having. Check out the fruit. Maybe that's why. So anyway, that's your Hebrew, Hebrew word lesson for the day, ruach. <laughs> um, a couple of verses on in here. Yeshua says something that I think Yeshua has a very poignant message for us in the messianic Jewish community in this chapter, and I think he also has a poignant message for those of us in the broader body of Christ. And it's almost like two opposites that perhaps he'd have to say. On, he, he, w- the other thing he's talking about in this chapter is uh, about like that which is earthly, right? That which pertains to the physical dimensions, uh, the physical realm. And then on the other hand, he also talks about that which is heavenly. Um, he references himself as he who is from heaven. And uh, he talks about that which is spiritual, right? So you kind of see these two elements playing out. And uh, he has an interesting word for uh, Mr. Nakdimon here. In 3.12 he says, If I told you earthly things and you don't believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? I wonder if this isn't a principle for understanding the things of God. If he he tells us something physical and we don't believe it or we don't act it out or incorporate it into our lifestyles, why would he give us more? How are we ever going to understand spiritual realities from the uh, higher dimensions of existence? It seems to be the question that Yeshua is posing here. And uh, I wonder if that doesn't apply to us sometimes. I, I look at the Torah and the Torah really is the ABCs of our faith, isn't it? I mean, it's the Torah that defines so many basic theological concepts. It gives us some initial pictures for them. Even, even from Adam, he is a, he is a foreshadowing. He, he's a type of the Mashiach. Uh, we have words like sin, holiness, righteousness. Uh, what are a couple others that are introduced in the Torah? Revelation, creation, redemption. Um, a lot of these big words that are plastered across the New Testament, right? But they don't start in the New Testament, they start in the Torah. You could almost, uh, I, I have a Hebrew teacher that I look up to who likes to say that the Old Testament is the dictionary of the New Testament. So if you want to understand a word in the New Testament, you have to you have to read the Old Testament and uh, understand it. And so here, here we see this. We see that the Torah is like the ABCs of our faith. And it includes some very basic things. Some things that are very physical. It talks about things like... Our diet about uh, you know our work schedule it covers things like who you marry it covers some things that you know they seem pretty physical it's like what does this have to do with the really spiritually knowing God and stuff but um, we see the same concept about how important the physical aspects of our faith are in uh, Paul's letter also in his uh, first letter to shall we say the messianic community in Corinth first Corinthians he says in chapter 15 verse 46 however the spiritual is not first but the natural then the spiritual so what we learn from this is the natural aspects the physical aspects of the outworking of our faith are very important it's what comes first, and when we like, get good grades on, in those grades, when we learn our lessons there, then we get to graduate to the next level, we get to move on to the cool, higher things. And uh, for me, anyway, that's an incentive to keep going because there are a lot of experiences that the prophets had that I've never had that I really want to have. Like, I've never had a vision of the throne room. I would love to be in the throne room and actually see those massive creatures that, that shout the holiness of God 24-7. I mean, why, why only the prophets in ancient times that got to experience that? Why, why only uh, Yohanan, you know, like John the Revelator? Um... They, they lived on a very high supernatural level. And I want to live on that level too, because I want to prove to people how real the Creator is. I want to show them just what an adventure it is to follow Messiah. You know, that, that living on the spiritual existence can be more real than our physical existence even. Wow. Well, if this is school, I think I'm in preschool right now. <laughs> if that's the case, that's a good point. Being born of the Spirit, he regarded that as a very basic... Mm. I love that about the whole gospel of John. It just seems like he gives this glimpse into the spiritual life of the master and and what a high level he lived on. Uh, 1 Corinthians 15, verse 46. Thank you. Got my reference backup people in action here. That's good. (laughs) yeah so you know I I think this could be a a question that the master would ask us as the greater body of Christ today if I've told you the earthly things in my Torah and you don't believe them how can I take you on to the heavenly things you know if, if I've explained over and over that my Shabbat is a 24 hour block of time from Friday evening to Saturday evening and that I don't want you to work during that time if at all possible I know like some of us have to work right but if I've shown you this and if I've explained in my Torah that this is a law forever that this is for all my people throughout all the generations and if you don't believe me on this, how are you going to believe me on some of the uh, upper level stuff? You know, what, what's going to happen when I take you to the next level where there's greater spiritual warfare, where you're going to encounter greater combat in the spiritual dimensions? You're just going to get shot down. You know. So we're in training as disciples here. And, and thank God for it. I just, I just love how every week we get to come together over the Word. We get to look to Yeshua. We get to learn from Him. We get to challenge each other in uh, not only in our faith in him, but in how we practice our faith. It's awesome. And uh, I'm just as much a learner as anybody, so please, you know, if you disagree with me, you can say that. If you have a question and maybe what I'm saying doesn't fit, hey, let's talk about that, you know. Greg and I were talking about that yesterday. Um, I like having dialogue. best way to grow together okay so that could be a word to the greater body of Christ now here's a word for us in the messianic community though we can be too fixated on the physical stuff we can we can be too obsessed with the like the earthly level of how we express our faith you know the minutia of doing mitzvot and we can get so hung up on that that we forget that the earthly things often are pictures of spiritual realities that Messiah is to be at the center of all this. That this isn't just a to-do list, a religious to-do list, right? So I think that could be a word for some of us in the Messianic community also. To always remember, you know, as you study a mitzvah, like a commandment, and and how to practice that in your life, don't forget to ask yourself, what's the principle behind this thing that applies to my whole life? Uh, What does this tell me about the person who gave me this commandment? The three Ps that we've talked about, you know, the practice, the principle. And the person in um, in Torah um, exegesis, so I, you know, in the Messianic community. Um Sometimes I think we give too little airtime to the spiritual and heavenly, and we should be fluently conversant in spiritual matters. We should be like comfortable and at home discussing heavenly realities. And I believe in the Messianic Jewish community that that is an area where we have much to learn from different streams in the body of Christ, people who have operated in the gifts of the Holy Spirit, people who are comfortable in that spiritual realm. So that, I think that's a great example of that. Um, okay, John three fifteen and 16 talks about this eternal life thing it seems like the objective Um, it's reiterated again in the last verse of the chapter verse 36 he who believes in the son has what? eternal life you want to learn the Hebrew term for eternal life? it's actually we have it somewhere over there there it is right there so, did you notice I told you, watch the blessing for after the Torah reading? Baruch the word asher natan Torah ve olam. That is the term for eternal life. ve chaye olam, nata betochen, who's planted it in our, in our centers, in our midst. So olam is the word for eternal, for forever, right? And you know the word chaim, uh, the word for life, you know, l'chaim, the toast to life, right? Well, the singular is chai. I'm, I'm chai, I'm alive. Uh, you're chai, you're alive, right? And so when you connect those two words, so like eternal life, then um, you say chaye olam. Can we all say chaye olam? Chaye olam. Yeah, so it's, it literally means like the lives of the olam, the lives of the... Oh, okay, the word olam, Do you know what the Greek equivalent is? Cosmos. Yes. Like, I don't know. You get into like talking about co- the cosmos and cosmic things, and you begin. You can begin to sound a little New Agey. But just stop and think about that for a moment, because there is a real. There's a real trend right now in the spiritual spiritual circles people who want to be religious who definitely don't want to have anything to do with fundamental Christianity or Judaism but they want to be spiritual and they'll talk about the cosmos they'll talk about being in harmony with the cosmos things like this right well here's the interesting thing we have the real the real deal with this and maybe we have something to offer people like that if we can learn those terms and then package the salvation message in meaningful terms the fact is when God offers us eternal life he's offering us cosmic life he's offering us the life of the cosmos it transcends the cosmos it preceded the cosmos it's the very life of God it's an uncreated life and somehow or other he connects us with that and and it begins to flow through us like he fills us with that and, and he begins to live through us in that way you know I'm not the one who lives the son of God lives in me wow so that's that's the idea behind Chaye Olam now here's the interesting thing if you ask a Jewish person about this term olam and where it pops up in the Torah and what it means on a practical level, they will probably tell you two things. Firstly, they'll say, well, Shabbat. Why? Because whenever God talks about Shabbat, or in most cases, He says, this is a law, le olam. This is a law forever. It's like for all eternity. So get this. There's a connection in, the, in Torah ideology between eternal life and doing Shabbat so when God gives us eternal life something that that eternal life that's pulsing inside of us wants to do is rest every Saturday something it wants to do is block out a 24 hour of time so it can just totally connect with the Creator and you can you can um, like renew your energy flow you can, you can rejuvenate your, in, your inner life right? there's, there's a connection between your eternal life and Shabbat so you know next, next Friday evening when you're, when you're starting to welcome Shabbat stop and ask yourself how is Shabbat a picture of eternal life? That's a good thing to ask. Um, also, the other term where olam pops up frequently in the Torah is in reference to the Aaronic priesthood. Um, God says over and over, the Aaronic priesthood, the anointing on these guys and their job description, it is le olam, it's forever. And strangely enough, that's often the very thing that we say, well, that was done away with. Well, that was for a previous dispensation. Well, that was temporary and uh, of course we, you know, we had quite an adventure as we read through these parses and we, we looked at all the places where God said yeah this is forever this is forever this is forever right ok so what, how does that apply to us we have eternal life in us um, it's the Messiah's eternal life how is that connected to priesthood Well what it tells me is that if you, have, if you are a recipient of that eternal life through faith in the Son of God then you are a priest you are a priest of that same indestructible order that Messiah is a part of that same eternal order and I personally think that our heritage as God's priests is one of the biggest things that we've missed because it is something of a mystery it's one of those really spiritual things but man the power in the priesthood that the Messiah has brought us into I, I, I would like for us as a community to be on a quest for the next several years to just discover what it means that Yeshua is our high priest and that we are priests under him. That's part of the quest that we're on. How does that sound? Okay, cool. So, here's maybe a little picture of that that mission. Maybe it's even a priestly mission. Uh, In 317, why did God send his Messiah into the world? Did he send his Messiah, our high priest, into the world to point out all of our sins and make us feel really crummy inside and condemn us to hell? No, God didn't send his son into the world to condemn the world, but rather to what? To save the world. Do you know what the Hebrew term there for the world is? The Olam. He came to save the Olam. Guess what the Greek term is there for the world? The cosmos. Messiah came to rescue the cosmos. This is a cosmic salvation we're talking about. It's not just like saving me in my little world so I have a ticket to go to heaven when I die and so I can feel happy inside. Maybe it starts there. But that's a very, very small-minded view of salvation. Like when you read John 3, you get this vision of a universal salvation, of all of creation being redeemed, of the cosmos being rescued from the evil one. Wow, that's the drama that you are swept up into. That's the mission of Messiah, and that's the mission that we are a part of. We are co-workers with Him in this, this salvation mission. I think... I think we in the Messianic community would do well to like write that verse on our fridges and read it every morning when we get up. God didn't send Messiah to judge. God sent Messiah to save. Right. So you know, if we're doing some stuff that most of the body of Christ is doing, what do we do? Do we judge the body of Christ for that? Or do we pray that God will save them? That God will restore the body of Christ? That he'll bring us back to the ancient paths and to the roots of our faith we pray. That's correct. And we also work. We work to uh to be out there serving the body of Messiah. We we work to establish relationships. We work to with Yeshua to help not only save the cosmos but to save his people from every vestige of sin. And that's our job. So that's a that's a verse you can write on an Odin. Stick it on your fridge. Um there is a verse in one of Paul's letters that I think really like emphasizes this idea and if you really get this verse in your mind it'll blow every little tiny shred of spiritual arrogance out of your heart I know that's what it did for me I, I, I have been spiritually arrogant I probably am spiritually arrogant we were all born like totally puffed up puffed up with pride right? although I don't know if Tirza was born like that she sure is cute <laughs> hey baby and Linda and I were discussing that yesterday we don't judge people but there is a place for us to evaluate practices, religious expressions, whatever, and to say, "Is this of God? Is this biblical?" You know. And uh, I, I agree. I think we're called to judge that on that level. And here, I, I found the verse: First Corinthians four seven. He he poses a couple of questions. He says, "What do you have that you didn't receive? And if you did receive it, why are you boasting it as if you hadn't received it?" So just stop and think about that for a second. Whatever spiritual level you're on, you know, whatever degree of closeness with God you have, uh, whatever degree to which you feel that you've been brought back to God's mitzvot and you're just doing the stuff, just remember that you received that from Him. And you didn't deserve it either. He just gave it to you because He really loves you and He was just like dumping some grace on you. Right? So I think as long as, if we can remember 1 Corinthians 4-7 and the questions there, remember that we are just on the receiving end of grace, that we have not done anything to deserve where we're at, wherever that may be, then I think we're going to do well. So what you were saying, Shoshana, about how we are called to judge on a certain level. Let's, let's look at that too. In John 3, 19-21, <clears throat> Yeshua, I'll just read it here for you. He says, This is the judgment that the light came into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light why because their deeds were evil everyone who does evil hates the light (laughs) and won't come to the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed but he who practices the truth comes to the light so that his deeds may be manifested as having been wrought in God what are the two key terms here light and truth Right? talks about practicing the truth talks about coming to the light now those are really like vague abstract terms, aren't they? Truth. I mean, in the words of Pilate, what is truth? I mean, that's up for grabs in our culture, right? Everybody's defining, has their own definition of truth. Light. Oh, uh, what is that? Is that like the inner light that's sometimes practiced in liberal brands of Quakerism, where basically just whatever your understanding is and whatever your internal illumination is, that must be what's correct? I mean, you know, really, what are these words, truth and light? This is an awesome example of how the Old Testament has to be our dictionary as we read the New Testament. What, does, what, what is light defined as in the Hebrew Bible, the Tanakh? What is truth defined as? Why don't we check out a couple of verses about that? What do you think? And then we'll go back and we'll read this passage, and maybe we'll have a clue what Yeshua is talking about, and he won't sound so like airy-fairy if I if I dare say that you know okay let's look at the word light first what is the light Proverbs 623 is the key Proverbs 623 it says for the mitzvah the commandment is a lamp and the Torah the teaching is light so let me ask you something according to the Bible that Jesus read what is the definition of light? the Torah is light God's teaching God's practical instructions from the foundational books of scripture that is light now let me ask you something on a deeper level who is light? who is the light? Yeshua. that's right Yeshua yeah that's true in him we're, we're the light too we're the light of the world yeah Okay, so here's, here's the picture. We have the Torah, God's teaching that is light, but who is the Torah made flesh? Yeshua. Who, who lived out the Torah like in such an incredible way? Yeshua did, that's right. And who modeled it for us? Yeshua did. So you know, we we're we're, we're, we're really want to stay focused on Him in this. And, uh, you know, it's, I, I really love this picture too. There's this picture of light. Light is something of an abstract concept, uh, kind of like wind, right? But it says specifically, what is the lamp that shines the light, uh, through which the light shines? What is the container of that light through which it's, uh, it's like uh, ushered into your home or into the physical universe? Proverbs 6.23 For the commandment is a lamp and the teaching is light so when we study god's commandments and we do them every single one of those is like letting the light of god into your world into your home and family into your workplace whatever into the city of prince albert isn't that cool so like these things this is one of god's commandments right when I put these on in this morning on some level I'm shining the light of God in my own life in my family's life I'm shining the light of God in this province and country wow hey there's a connection between the spiritual and the physical dimensions and this is just an example right there are other commandments like showing kindness to people uh, honest business dealings uh, respect for authority all of these things when we practice them we are shining God's light in this universe we are we are teaming up with Messiah to rescue the cosmos. Wow. Okay. So that now we know what the light is. Now let's check out this term, truth, and see what we can discover. We're going to have to turn to Psalm 119 for this one, and we actually have two witnesses in Psalm 119 about this. I always like it when there are two witnesses for something, just to just to just to confirm it. Um, it was really enjoyable reading Psalm 119 during the Omer count, wasn't it? Reading the whole thing as we counted up the days to Shavuot when we commemorated the giving of the Torah. Psalm 119, verse 142, says, Your righteousness is an everlasting righteousness, and your Torah is truth. Your law is truth. So, what is truth as defined by the Bible that Jesus read? The Torah, that is correct. God's law. Hmm? Yeah, that's Psalm 119, 142. And then just look a couple of verses down. Psalm 119, ver- verse 151. You are near Yahweh, and all your mitzvot, all your commandments are truth. Wow! Catch that, eh? Can you believe that? According to the Bible that Jesus read, truth is defined as all of God's commandments. So let's, with that understanding, go back and read John chapter 3. And we'll see what that means. Okay, John 3.19. This is the judgment that the light... What's the light? The The Torah. Has come into the world, and men love the darkness rather than the light. That's good. When I say the light, you say the Torah. That's good. For their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light... And doesn't come to the light, for fear that his deeds will be exposed. But he who practices the truth, and what's the, what's, what's the truth defined as here? The Torah. He who practices the truth comes to the light, so that his deeds may be manifest as having me God. I'm just going to read this with a little addition there, just so we can get that. This is the judgment that the Torah has come into the world... And let's remember here that the Torah is a person. His name is Yeshua. But he cannot be separated from the foundational books of Scripture, the Torah of Moses. They are one and the same. This is the judgment that the Torah has come into the world, and men love the darkness rather than the Torah, for their deeds are evil. For everyone who does evil hates the Torah, and doesn't come to the Torah, for fear that his deeds will be exposed. But he who practices the Torah comes to the Torah, so that his deeds may be manifested as having been wrought in God. Does that give us a, a little more of a concrete understanding of this? Instead of sounding like we're in some kind of floaty New Age thing with light and truth and whatever else. Yeshua's Torah with skin on this too. And you know, the whole Bible, you could see that as the Torah. It's all God's teaching, isn't it? It's all the law of God. Wow, right, yes. That's in the next chapter. So if the Father's looking for people to worship Him in truth, do you think that might be in a Torah context? Man, we, we have a lot to put in our theological pipes and smoke this morning, don't we? <laughs> well, it's, it's Shabbat, so don't light up your theological pipe. I, I don't really smoke, right? It's just, it's just, a, just an expression. <laughs> okay, so John chapter 4. Let's move on to John 4 here. This is a fascinating verse in um, John 4 two. Although Yeshua himself wasn't immersing, but his disciples were. Isn't that interesting? On on the one hand, it says that Yeshua was immersing in chapter 3, verse 22. Then the next chapter clarifies, it wasn't actually Him doing it. He was doing it, yeah, but it was through the agency of His disciples. That's a picture of you. That's a picture of me. That's a picture of every time we do a mitzvah. You know, like we do one of God's commandments. uh, uh, Showing kindness to our neighbors. Helping the poor. uh, Whatever. Smiling at somebody. That's like, that's not just you doing that. That's Messiah doing that. Isn't that cool? He's the head, we're the body. He's the spirit within us, and we're the expression of that. I also think that this is a great picture of the training that Yeshua took them, his disciples through, and that he's taking us through. I mean, these guys were an intensive training. Yeshua was phasing them in to doing the work of the kingdom from the very beginning. And uh, it's also a great example of effective leadership techniques. You know, that Yeshua wasn't just out there trying to do it all himself. As much as he could, he was delegating the work of the kingdom to his disciples. He was phasing them in. And uh, I really love how he's doing that with us as a Messianic community also. Um, Wow. Okay, chapter 4. Someone asked yesterday at our Shavuot celebration if there were any passages in the Bible that happened during Shavuot. And I think it was Genevieve that asked And you know what? I suspect that John chapter 4 is a Shavuot chapter, a Feast of Weeks chapter. The reason is, in verse 35, Yeshua says, Don't you say there are yet four months and then comes the harvest? Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes and look on the fields, that they are white for harvest. Now, here's the thing about ancient Israel they had two harvest seasons. They had the wheat and the barley harvest in the spring, um, during, you know, that was around Passover and Pentecost, shall we say. And then they had the harvest of the fruit and the grapes, etc., in the fall. So that's why Yeshua could say, Look, it's harvest time. The fields are ripe. And yet also say, the harvest is in four months. Shavuot is in the beginning of the third month, correct? So we count four months after Shavuot, and we get to what? The seventh month. What is the seventh month all about? The harvest. Chag HaSukot, like the, the festival of tabernacles. It's also called Chag HaSif. The harvest festival, the feast of the ingathering. So there's a connection between John chapter 4 and the Shavuot theme. Which book is read... This, this is like a... This is a pop question for you. Which book is read in traditional Judaism at Shavuot? It's one of the little books. It's called a Megillah, like a little scroll. It's, we didn't read it together, so, you know... No problem if you don't know. The book of Ruth. The reason is that Boaz was doing the barley harvest and the Shavuot is about the barley harvest. Um, On a deeper level, maybe it's because there's something about Ruth being someone from the nations who comes to the God of Israel and who also pledges allegiance to the people of Israel out of her great love. Maybe there's a connection between Shavuot, the book of Ruth, and John chapter 4. The story of the Samaritan woman. Ooh. Oh. I'm, I'm not going to tie all those thoughts for you together. I just want to leave that in your mind to, to percolate some. Wow. Okay, you look at... You, okay, you know, like we were just down in Hudson, Wisconsin for their conference over Shavuot and their theme was Torah and Evangelism. It was a fascinating theme. I learned some stuff. I read this chapter and I see Evangelism all over it. It's like Yeshua is doing the job of an evangelist, bringing people to Himself. And did you notice how he started it off? Maybe this is like one of the ways of the Master. This is maybe this was one of Yeshua's techniques for connecting with people and uh, you know being able to share the message with them. He started with just an everyday item. He started with an object lesson, and then he kind of took it from there. You know, this lady was out there like dragging the water out of the well, and. He used that as a starting point for a conversation. And then he started using water as a picture for what he had to offer. And uh, he, he used this analogy of a thirst for a deeper truth, that each of us in our spirits have a spiritual thirst, that we just have that deep need for something more. And unfortunately, a lot of us, you know, we think that, well, that deep need will be satisfied if I can only make this figure per year, or I can only have this person go on a day with this person, or if I can only um, read through this many books. If you're me, that would probably be what I would be tempted to to uh, go for. You know, that kind of thing. And uh, Yeshua says, he just uses this thirst analogy, and this drinking water analogy to, to teach a truth. Maybe it's an example of that principle that we learned just in the last chapter. Start with the physical, and then work your way to the spiritual. First the natural, then the the heavenly realities. So anyway, I just, I love how Yeshua did that. Um, object lessons are powerful. They were something our master used. And uh, next time you're like driving and you're bored and you don't know what to do, play an object lesson game is what I would suggest. Just like find something in your vehicle or some common uh, object on the side of the road or whatever and say, okay, see that? How, how could you use that to uh, give a parable about salvation? How, how, is the, how does that, like, the kingdom of God, you know what I mean? Yeshua did that all the time. He'd be like, yeah, the kingdom of God is like a farmer, you know, doing this. The kingdom of God is like, you know, when the lady's making the bread, she's kneading the bread. I mean, these are just regular, everyday activities, right? So that's a fun game that we like to sometimes play. I, I highly recommend it. In the process, you may be getting in the zone uh, that Yeshua communicated in. So, How's that for practical, something practical to take away today? Play the object lesson game. Okay. Um, More Hebrew wordplay we find in 4 verse 10. Yeshua says, you know, if you'd asked him, he would give you living water. Living water isn't a word that people use in our culture. You know, I mean, we have camp living waters south of PA, but we more think of that in terms of all the leeches and all of the little creepy crawlies. It's like living waters in a scary sense, right? Um, the Hebrew term for living waters is mayim chaim. Can we say that? Mayim chaim. It's a rhyme. And you know chaim, living, right? So mayim is water. And uh, it's the Hebrew word for running water, for fresh flowing water, for cold, clear water. So this is the analogy that Yeshua uses for the life that we can have in Him. And uh, He uses Hebrew wordplay in the process. Okay. Um, this water theme that you had brought up is all the way in Genesis chapter 1. It goes all the way through the scriptures. Uh, We're going to encounter it in John chapter 7, where Yeshua says, if you're thirsty, come to me. He says that on the last day of Sukkot, right when they're doing the simchat beit Hashoeva, the rejoicing of the water-pouring ceremony. And that's something that we're going to reenact this fall, on the last day of Sukkot, of tabernacles, and I'll do some more teaching on it then. So until then, I'm just going to hold all those secrets related to that to myself. I mean, maybe if you like get me in a corner and tackle me or something, you could drag one or two of them out before then. But other than that, we're just gonna we're gonna like postpone that topic until this fall. Um, another fascinating communicatory technique that Yeshua employs here. This woman, she starts realizing, you know what? There's something to this guy that you know maybe I should be taking seriously. And did you notice what her responses is? Right away, boom! She starts throwing religious issues at him, right? Well, you know, our fathers worshipped, or, you know, drew water from this well. It's the one that he gave, jo- uh, Jacob gave to Joseph. And she starts, like, right away, all of the Samaritan polemics come up in this conversation, right? Um, later on, he, he mentions about, you know, you, uh, you're right, you don't have a husband. You've had five husbands, and the guy you're shacking up with right now, you're not even married to him. And uh, she says, oh, you know, I, 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 I'm perceiving that you're a prophet. And then what's the next thing she says? Uh, Our father's worshipped here. You guys say that we should worship in Jerusalem. Like, what's going on? Right? And did you notice how Yeshua just sidesteps all of the issues that people then thought were issues, but maybe weren't the real issues? And he goes right to the heart. He goes right to the heart of where she was at with the Almighty. He goes right to the heart of her spiritual thirst and how that can be satisfied. Wow. Wow. I just think, you know, we would do well to do that also. Next time someone brings up a big issue or starts throwing polemics your way about whatever, just stop and just ask the Father, Father, what's the heart of this issue? What should we really be talking about here? What should I bring up? And uh, in doing that, you will be walking in the way of the Master. Uh, John 4.21, Yeshua says, Woman, believe me, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem where you worship the Father... I think traditionally that's been interpreted as a diss on Jerusalem. That's like a little, you know, a little slam on the temple system. But we we learn from the apostolic scriptures that Yeshua loved the temple. He spent time at the temple whenever he could. The early messianic community loved the temple also. They worshipped at the temple. They would go up for the traditional hours of prayer. Uh, They even participated in the animal offerings. That's what it says in Acts. So we know that Yeshua wasn't dissing the temple here, right? But on a very practical level, it's true. She wasn't going to be worshipping in Jerusalem because she was a Samaritan and she wouldn't have been allowed to worship in Jerusalem. It's actually, I think, a very relevant lesson for all of believers from the nations across planet earth. You know, if they rebuild the temple, you're not going to be allowed into that inner area because that's only reserved for legally Jewish people. They're going to have a court of the Gentiles, right? But what's the bigger question? The bigger question is, what is his house all about? His house is a house of prayer for all nations. And we can pray right here and now, can't we? We can come into his, his heavenly residence right now through Messiah. And that's what we do. Uh, more Hebrew wordplay in 422. It says, you worship what you don't know. We, we worship what we know. For salvations from the Jews. What's the Hebrew word for salvation? Yeshua, That's correct. <laughs> so he's, he was giving some wordplay here, right? He was saying, salvation is from the Jews. Who's from the Jews? Yeshua is from the Jews. Same thing. We miss that in English, don't we? Did you notice, though, how Yeshua referred to the Jewish people? How, the terms that he used when he talked about the people of Israel? He didn't say, those unregenerate Jews. He didn't say, those cut off branches. He said... We worship what we know. So when Yeshua talks about the Jewish people, then and now, he says we. When Yeshua talks about the people of Israel, then and now, he says we. He uses terms like us and we, right? So, I mean, as his disciples, maybe we would do well to adopt his terminology. When when you talk about the Jewish people, even though you may be from a non-Jewish background, you can say we... When you talk about the, the country of Israel, even though you may have a passport that says Canadian on it or whatever, you can say us when you're talking about the country of Israel because you've been brought in. Isn't that cool? Yeah, that's right. So that's another practical thing that we can work on. You know, when I, I highly recommend, read, read some Jewish history. You know, just read a good book on Jewish history from start to finish. Uh, most of us are very... Unfamiliar with most of Jewish history, um, there are lots of great books out there on it. Come to me afterwards, and i can I can point you in a good direction in that way. But as you read through that jewish history don 't read it as them read it as us right say this is my history this is this is this is us i 'm reading about and that is going to totally change your worldview that 's going to bring you closer to messiah 's heart that is going to give you his perspective on the world today and also on the country of Israel so that's another practical thing we can take away from this Um, chapter 4 it concludes with Yeshua spending how many days with the Samaritans yeah in verse 40 it says he stayed there two days and then it reiterates again in verse 43 after the two days he went forth from them why does it repeat twice that he stayed with them for two days why is it so specific Huh? Okay, I have an idea. I don't think it was just for no reason that it says two days. There's a principle in the scriptures, and this is a principle that the early church was very in touch with. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. Right? Therefore, every week is like a microcosm of 7,000 years of human history. Every Sabbath that we celebrate is a picture of the thousand-year reign of Christ from Revelation chapter 20, the millennial kingdom, the, the messianic era. So, if these Samaritans were people from the nations, they were Gentiles, they weren't Jewish, right? And it says that Yeshua spent two days with them, what could that picture on a higher level? Two days equals two, what? Two thousand years. Isn't that interesting? So could it be that, you know, there's about a two thousand year frame of time, like you're saying, Linda, that's like the time of the Gentiles, where Yeshua is really spending most of his time out amongst the nations, saving the nations, um, bringing the Gentiles to himself. And then what happens after those two thousand years? Yeah, right. Like, um, maybe, maybe God will continue to work with the Gentiles, but maybe Israel will come to the forefront of his movement on the earth hey maybe the Jewish people will come to be leaders in the body of Christ as they're prophesied to be maybe that's why we're here in Prince Albert today who knows maybe the time of the Gentiles is starting to come to a close yeah yeah technically <laughs> but okay why don't we look at the parasha I'm just gonna draw out a couple themes here And then we will wrap at 12.15. So we have about 10 minutes left here. Man, I don't know. I just, reading through John 3 and 4, it just felt so rich to me. Like just looking at our Hebrew Yeshua, looking at our Jewish Savior, and just realizing the language that he spoke, you know, some of these terminology that he used and how it was to be defined. Whew, that just, that did it for me. Okay, uh, Numbers 4. There are some chapters in here that are quite technical that apply mainly to the tribe of Levi. I don't think any of us that I'm aware of identify very strongly with Levi. So, you know, some of this just kind of goes over our heads. But there was one practical application I wanted to make from Numbers 4, verse 23. It uses a very interesting Hebrew term in reference to the the priestly job description. It's uh, talking about the census. It says uh, Numbers 4:23, "From 30 years and upward to 50 years old, you shall number them, all who enter to perform the service, to do the work in the tent of meeting." You know that sounds pretty standard, right? You go in to do your job, perform the service in the tent of meeting. The problem is the Hebrew term there is much more graphic. It says when they come in, litzvot sava. Now let me ask you, what does the Hebrew word sava mean? It's the Hebrew word for the army of Israel. Litzvo means like to do military duty, to serve in the army. Vitzava is the army. You know where he's called the Lord Sabaoth, Yahweh Tzavaot. That means like Yahweh of armies. There's this military aspect to our God. That's what's um, wrapped up in that title. So how does that apply to us? What What it what it tells us is that we have been called as Messiah's representatives in the realm of prayer. We are priests who are imbued with his authority to bless the people in our lives. And that is military service. You're you're in the army when you're doing that. Why? Because we live in a world that has been plunged into combat. Uh, We live in a universe that's at war. And we're in the middle of it. You are not a civilian, spiritually speaking. You are a soldier in Messiah's army. And when you pray, when you bless people, yeah, that's part of the combat. We're we're taking people from Messiah. So you could even say that priestly work is of a military nature, and priestly work involves warfare on a spiritual plane that can be more intense and grueling, more dangerous and challenging than the combat that a marine or a ranger or a Navy SEAL will ever face. It's real. I'm sure I'm sure you've experienced that at different times in your life. Maybe that's part of why we're a community. You know, we can come together if we've we've taken a hit or whatever. We can we can receive ministry or healing or prayer. Um, we can encourage each other. We can get fresh directions and strategies from our heavenly. Um, what would you call it? Like the headquarters? <laughs> yeah, that kind of concept. So anyway, I don't know. I, I often think in military terms. So. That concept really speaks to me anyway i don't know how much it'll speak to some of you we're canadians they don't let us have guns you know we don't we almost have no army so it's not the kind of thing that maybe means as much to us but (laughs) yeah okay uh numbers 5 7 another very practical mitzvah a practical commandment that we can do it says real it's really nice and simple um starting in six uh speak to the sons of israel when a man or woman commits any of the sins of mankind acting unfaithfully against Yahweh, and that person's guilty, then he shall confess his sins, which he's committed. And then it talks about making restitution also, which is great. You don't just confess your sin, you know, you make it right. So anyway, that's a really, just a really practical one. You know, when we, when we sin, when we violate God's law, when we do something wrong, the best way to do things is not just to go to God and say, God, I'm sorry, you know, I repent. Please forgive me of my sin. It's good to confess your sin to another person also confession is good for the soul and that's something that I think is really fallen out of vogue in our culture I mean really who who wants to go to somebody and admit their faults or their problems or their sin or whatever right but that's the point it's the pride in us that doesn't want to do that and it is so humbling to go to someone and say yeah like I sinned against God in this area and I just wanted to confess that and would you pray with me you know but that's where the grace is numbers five it gives this very complex ritual if a husband suspects that his wife has been cheating on him. And we're not going to go into all the details of that. But something that the sages noticed about this, this, this uh, elaborate ritual is that God's name is written on a scroll and then it's washed off in this water. And if you, if you know anything about Jewish tradition, you never erase the name of God. Because that would kind of be like diminishing or whatever, right? So they say, wow, God cares so much about the marital relationship. He cares so much about Shalom Bayit, about Shalom in the home, that he makes this ritual where his very name is erased. And I wonder if there isn't a deeper thing here. We have a Messiah who is the Son of God, who I believe is God in the flesh, and he died. He was crucified. It was almost like through his death, the name of God was temporarily erased. If you could say it like that. I could get into some esoteric Jewish theology that would really back that concept. But all that to say, you know, the gospel and the power of the gospel, it isn't just for me as an individual, it's for my marriage too. And, you know, I mean, Genevieve and I haven't even been married for three years, but I've come to really realize that, like, I need God to save me. I need God to save my marriage. You know, we have have fallen from the glory of God. As individuals, and also in our marriages. And Messiah came to bring us back, to restore us to the glory of God. Not only in our individual souls, but in our marriages, in our families. So that's something that we can learn on a gospel level about this elaborate ritual for the husband who is jealous over his wife. Um, the Nazarite chapter. Did you know I took a Nazarite vow for a full year? at one time in my life? I wasn't planning to. But I felt prompted to. I said, Father, I've never thought about doing something like this before. I'm just starting to court Genevieve, and if I start growing my hair out, she's going to think I'm crazy. And I may not look as good to her either. So I said, Father, if that's from you, uh, please confirm it. And later that week, he did confirm it in a really amazing way. Um, I was working in Calgary, uh, timber framing down in Okotoks. And my brother Colin was also doing construction in Alberta. So he came in on Friday. We were going to do kiddos like we were going to, you know, celebrate Shabbat together on Friday evening. So we did that, and then we went for a drive, and we were just catching up, right? And he was like, Izzy, you know, you you wouldn't believe it. I... uh, I was reading the story of Samson this week, how Samson was a Nazirite, and how, uh, you know, when he lost his dedication to God, you know, when his hair got cut off, then he just lost his, his spiritual vision, he lost his spiritual power. And God has just been really speaking to me about being a spiritual Nazirite. Now, what you need to know is like that last Sunday was when I read about Samson and about the Nazarites and I felt prompted to do this, right? And that's when I asked God to give me a really clear confirmation and I didn't tell anybody about my prayer. And this, like the next Friday, Colin is like, yeah, and God's been speaking to me about being a Nazarite and he went into some detail that almost echoed the very things the Holy Spirit had spoken to me. He's like, yeah, you know, like, you know God is just really calling us to, to not even eat one grape or one raisin that the world has to offer. You know, those sweet little delicacies that are just a little." maybe in the gray area that the world has to offer. You know, maybe those things that would produce inebriation, spiritual fogginess in my mind. God's just calling me to be hardcore, and just to totally avoid it and not even come close to it. Not even a grape or a raisin. And, Con- and, you know, and God's just calling me to like grow my hair out. And Colin was talking spiritually here. He wasn't talking about taking a Nazarite vow, right? But I was like, this is really interesting. You know, God's just calling me to, to grow my hair out and just to be wild for him. You know, just to let my hair go loose, and just to to be the man that He's created me to be, and, and not to not to not to like bow to the fear of man, but just only to bow to God and only fear God. You know. And Colin was saying this stuff, and like I get chills just saying this right now. Seriously, um, just thinking about it, and I was like, okay, Father. Um, I guess that wasn't just a whim that I had or some crazy idea last Sunday. So, you know, I took a year-long Nazarite vow. You can't do it all because, you know, you cut off your hair at the end and you, you burn it on the altar at the temple in Jerusalem. Um, you do some animal offerings. Acts, I think it's 21, talks about how those are actually pretty expensive animal offerings. Um, Paul paid the expenses of four Nazarites to to do that. And actually, there's evidence that Paul did a Nazarite vow because it says that when he was on his His uh, sailing trip to Jerusalem, he had his hair shaved in Centria. You remember reading that? Because he was keeping a vow. Guess what? That's a Nazarite vow. I don't know what Paul was doing, keeping the ceremonial law after Yeshua was raised from the dead. Unless maybe it still mattered. Maybe he still saw that as a valid expression of faith. Maybe he thought that God's commandments were still for believers then. I didn't notice any evidence of superhuman strength during my Nazarite vow. Although I was timber framing for like eight or 10 hours and tossing around big. You, like, I, have you ever seen a timber frame structure? You're dealing with like 20 and 30 foot long beams that are like 10 to 20 inches wide. We were working with big like huge two fo- 240 volt skill saws that took both hands. And so I mean, I don't know, I'm pretty strong in general. But I don't think I had any supernatural stuff going on. Would have been cool. Right. Yeah. Okay. You're dealing with two separate Hebrew words, but they are related. Like when it says Yeshua was the Nazarene, it means he was from Nazareth. The Hebrew term there, the full term is Nazarati. Can we all say Nazarati? And the shorter term is Nozri. Everybody say Nozri. Uh, Nozri today means Christian. Nazarati means if you're from Nazareth, right? So uh, the uh, the early believers were called the sect of the Nazarenes, the Nozrim because they were followers of Yeshua, the, the Nazarene. But that's a different term than this one. This is Nazarite. And uh, you can hear the root nazar in, like, the sect of the Nazarenes. But with Nazarite, it's the word Nazir. nazar, Nazir, right? So they're related, but they're different words. Nazir, uh, it's like, okay, you know where it says, like, a stranger shall not come, come to the inner sanctum of the tabernacle? The Hebrew word for stranger there is zar and it's the same route like a, Nazir, a Nazir is like someone who is on the fringe who is marginalized from the mainstream who is set apart to whatever degree who is a stranger as it were right and these guys were they did have that dynamic going on they were a little wild with their hair um, they wouldn't drink wine so they couldn't just participate in you know the, the party and the village social misfits sure, that kind of thing so yeah so, they're, they're, they're different words, but they, I think they are related. Thank you for joining us in this message. I pray that it's been an inspiration to you and your discipleship to Yeshua the Messiah. Crown of Messiah is a relatively small congregation with a massive mission. We're not just making disciples and teaching the Word of God here in our city, we're also doing that internationally through vehicles such as the Internet. It is our joy to offer you these messages for free at absolutely no charge. At the same time, we do have ongoing overhead expenses. It costs us something to produce these teachings and get them out to you. And we would appreciate it if you would, in turn, support our work in a practical way. Help us cover some of our basic expenses. You can do that by going to our website crownofmessiah.com and going to the donate page. Where you can make a one time donation or you can set up a monthly automated donation. I'm reminded of the words of Yeshua's Apostle Paul in Galatians chapter 6. He said, Let the one who is taught the word share everything good with his teacher. So if you're being taught the word by us, we would appreciate it if you would take the words of Yeshua's Apostle seriously and make some type of return for the blessing that we are giving you for free. That way we'll all be in it together and we will be a team accomplishing the mission that Yeshua has given us. And you will go from only being a receiver to also being a giver. If you're like most people, finances are tight. We understand that. Finances are tight for us too. That's why we need people like you to come alongside us and to back us in the work that Yeshua has called us to do. Thank you so much for making that donation at CrownOfMessiah.com and thank you for becoming a team member with us. We appreciate it.